Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from various locations here in the city of Detroit, powered by the Eastside Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform for authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. We drop a new EP every week. So today we'll be talking to the Deputy Director of the Michigan State uh, Labor and Economic Opportunity Office in charge of prosperity and she is the key staffer for the state's poverty task force. Her resume is long and she is a daughter of Detroit. Kim Trent, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Thank you. I've been um, listening to you guys. I'm so happy that I'm finally able to join you. We're... Although I'm not able to be with you in person. <laughs> it's good to always hear your voice. We're so excited to have you. And also joining us today is the President and CEO of TechTown Detroit. He's also done so many things, including having served as the Vice President of the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. Ned Stabler, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Ned. We may have we may have lost Ned. We'll work on uh, getting him back on. So uh, we've been dealing with the COVID nineteen pandemic for a couple of weeks now, uh, Donna and Kim, mm-hmm. and we've sort of been sequestered in our various locations at home. My question to you is to just to add some levity to this conversation. Did you all manage to figure out anything fun to do while we're all quarantined in our various locations? Well. Okay, you know, fun is relative because I was supposed to be spending the weekend in New York and my trip was canceled due to this. So I was home. Um, I was going to New York to every year I go to Columbia University Earth School to talk about sustainability in Detroit. And oh, just so, a light flex from Donna Gibbons, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a light flex. <laughs> just gentle, because Orlando was going to be paid to go to Syracuse. This was my volunteer work. But um, yeah, Orlando missed a paycheck. I just was going to, you know, be out there <laughs> during the week. Okay, but <laughs> but you know what I did. Um, Kim, you'll appreciate this. I discovered Real Housewives of Atlanta. Oh, you discovered it? Oh, gosh. I know. It's, <laughs> I, it's only been 12 seasons. We were like, I went back to 2008, okay? Oh, my and God. And I've been working my way forward because I was like, the I show is that want old? to know what people are yes, talking about. My children shamed me and told me I could not really be a real black woman until I watch Real Housewives of Atlanta. So I finally know who Nene is. <laughs> and you know what's funny about that, Donna? You you literally stole my answer because that was the only thing that brought me joy this weekend. <laughs> and that is my secret shame that I watch that show. I'm so embarrassed about it, but I watch it religiously every Sunday. I do. I mean, I'm like, give oh, it up. I'm so proud of myself. I gave it up for years. And then I got stuck back in. And it's horrible. It's just horrible. Oh. And then I'm I'm a horrible parent because I got my son watching it too. It's like, oh. <laughs> Donna is really addicted because she even tried to convince me to watch I it. I'm like, I I don't even know. I did. Listen, know. if you, I mean, 
if you're interested in human behavior, it is definitely an interesting show to watch. (laughs) I mean, it's the worst of human behavior, but (laughs) yeah, they, um, uh, I mean, I don't know. It's good TV. I'm sorry. It's horrible for our race. It's horrible for our gender. (laughs) It's horrible for Detroiters because Kenya Moore is the worst. Oh, but... yeah, she is from Detroit. <laughs> Do we claim her? Oh, I went to high school with her. Oh, wow. I did. She was two years behind me at Cass Tech. And let me tell you something. She is the most beautiful person I've ever seen in person. I really do think that. Yeah. She is absolutely gorgeous. We had two women who graduated around the time that I was at Cass Tech who became the, the first and second Black women to ever serve as Miss USA. Can you? Yeah, I was like, she was Miss. Yeah, Miss USA. She was the second, and Carol Gibbs, who graduated me in 1987, was the first. And they both were gorgeous. But I remember Kenya Moore the first time I saw. I walked up to her and said, "Oh my God, you are stunning!" (laughs) And I've never done that before since to anybody. (laughs) And then she just turned out to be such a horrible human being. (laughs) Like I wish I could take my confidence. (laughs) So Ned, are you a fan of uh, Real Housewives of Atlanta? Did you indulge this week? I have never watched an episode. Shame, <laughs> shame. You know what? Now that you have time, yeah. <laughs> because of this, you have plenty of time. Yes, Ned has plenty of time, Don. I'm sure I know. Right now, I'm watching Netflix, so yeah. <laughs> well, there's no more sports, okay? There's no basketball, no Final Four, no nothing. You might as well watch, you know. Um, let's see, social aggression <laughs> since you can't watch. <laughs> wow. Yeah, without the, That's I'm kind of going through withdrawal. I'm about to start watching darts or um, billiards or something. Uh, yeah, the end of Ocho because yeah, it, it, I'm hurting. So I, it, the funniest thing happened this this weekend. Uh, it, it was my mom's birthday, so we celebrated her birthday. Uh, Happy birthday, last year mom. in the fifties. Yeah, Happy last birthday. year in the fifties, and um, we we were home, and she was talking about her students in TikTok. She wanted to learn how to do TikTok dances, oh, so okay. we had a dress rehearsal for TikTok. On Saturday and Sunday, and so coming soon wow. to a social media platform near you, Orlando and Orlando's mom will be doing TikTok. TikTok. All right, I'm gonna have to follow you. <laughs> now that I will watch. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, it's been it's been hilarious. So Ned, so what was what, your weekend? You find any levity this weekend? Um, as much levity as you can have when you're quarantined in with an eight year old and twelve year old boy who want to destroy everything um yeah but you know uh we did all right uh, we we tried to social distance but still get out to the park my kids wanted to play uh pokemon so we we walked around and pokemon goed everywhere and uh nice. yeah other than that um you know we didn't do a whole heck of a lot we just tried to stay in i gotta admit i actually worked yeah, was- most of the weekend just because we got so much going on you know yeah, we're going to talk about what you've been working on uh, a little later on in the show. But it was it was a really beautiful weekend uh, to be, you know, around some green space, going for a walk or around the park. Well, that you know, uh, we are encouraging people to do. Yes, Donna, we're right? encouraging people whose knees are not bad to walk around and to <laughs> <laughs> get outside. No, seriously, fresh air and sunshine will do you good. 
And I do get a little yeah. bit stir crazy. So going outside really helps. Um, I, I want to say something really funny, though, or, or fun. I don't know if it's funny or not. But Kim and I belong to a book club. And normally <laughs> we get together and we drink wine and we spend about five minutes maybe talking about the book. <laughs> and then we go off and bear off in other directions, right? But this past mm-hmm. five minutes on that's a good book club meeting, Donna, that we get five minutes in. <laughs> so, Usually we have like the author and the title of the book, and that's about it. So. And then everybody says, nobody read it, or half the people didn't read it. We're like, just come anyway. But this, we had a Zoom book club meeting, and this was the most efficient book club we've ever had in our life. We talked about it. The it was. Book. It was unbelievable. I was like, wow. We were examining we characters. <laughs> we talked about plot structure and wow like <laughs> placing how, what the what the um, novel was you know what it meant for the bigger picture for you know the African diaspora I mean, we had like really intelligent <laughs> debate about a book on one so maybe we just need to go with this format from now on I think Zoom is the way to go Zoom is the way to go <laughs> I'm telling you, I was telling Donna that, you know, this newfound efficiency is, it, it, number one, it's amazing. And then number two, like, it's addictive because you, now that you're so efficient, you think you can just schedule things on top of each other. Right. And I was, like, trying to warn folks. It's like, guys, take a break. I know it's efficient. Let's just make sure that we factor in some breaks to, like, go outside and sit on the porch. And just something. the process, what happened in those calls? Because I had one day last week, I think I had eight conference calls, mm. and then I had to come home and do a conference call, and at the end of the day, I was just completely fried. I mean, when do you have time to really just process what you're talking about on the call? Absolutely. Yeah, so guys, take a break. Take a break. Remember to eat because, you know, we're sitting in our home offices <laughs> all day <laughs> looking at I these screens. You, Amanda, I, that's something I have not forgotten. Yeah, I don't have any problem <laughs> remembering to eat right now. I am stress eating everything. everything. It's not the COVID nineteen. Yeah, I'm putting no on the COVID thirty five right now. <laughs> don't don't go through your emergency snacks, well, ladies and, and gentlemen. Like said, <laughs> they gotta laugh. Potato chips and nobody's there to see me. Did it really happen? It's I was alone in the forest with my bag of chips. <laughs> Oh God! Wow, thank you. We needed yeah. that. We needed that laugh. Yeah. So, guys, a, a lot of news today mm-hmm. uh, concerning the COVID nineteen pandemic coming from uh, the White House, coming from our state capitol and the governor's office, and even from City Hall here in Detroit. My question to everybody tonight is: How are you reacting and digesting all of the information? Because it seems like there's so much information coming at us. How are, how are, how are you dealing? Um, I think I'm, go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, I, I was going to say, I'm trying to triage it because there's so much information. Um, and I, I think you really have to try and sort of filter out some of the noise. So I just stopped listening to the white house altogether. Cause I don't think anything I'm hearing from there is true. So, um, I just I haven't listened to any of those uh, uh, press conferences or anything like that. Um, I'm I'm really trying to get my news from public health experts 
And uh, I think the governor's done a pretty good job of trying to balance, um, you know, the severity of this, but also impressing upon people that, um, you know, we are going to get through it and it's just going to require some sacrifice and some changes in the way we live. Um, but also that, you know, there are some, some changes we have to make and we have to adapt to some extent. So I'm really just trying to filter my news sources uh, to, to try and only pay attention to really credible ones, which is harder today than it was probably five or 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that I was going to say one of the problems with being on a show with really smart people is they keep stealing my huh. answers. So, um, cause I, swear, <laughs> I was going to say the exact same thing Ned, about just, um, how much I'm really paying attention to what, um, experts have to say and just filtering, you know, for a long time, I mean, really for the last three years, three and a half years or so, I just don't watch Donald Trump. I just can't do it much. I just can't. So, but I've been forcing myself to do it lately just because of Dr. Fauci. You know, I've just been thinking, okay, this is someone who is honest. This is someone who is a professional, who's a grown-up, who is willing to come behind this person and correct him. But I noticed he wasn't on the podium today. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. replaced by Bill Barr. So, um, Mm -hmm. Which makes no sense, by the way. No sense. None. None. Exactly. Um, Um, Can I just say, um, I don't want to be involved in spreading false rumors, but I have to put this out here because right before this started, somebody who I have since silenced on my page said that Cardi B said that actors were being paid to celebrities were being paid being paid to say they had coronavirus. And she says, Do you think that's true? And people started chiming in and I became enormously angry. So I'm having to watch my temper because this is the same person who said that the United States was weak because we don't crack down on people like China does and force people to stay in their homes. And this exact same person was willing to spread misinformation as though it had possible factual value. And so what I've been doing is muting ignorant people on all of my social media pages so that I can breathe again. Because Mm -hmm. Donald Trump is one thing I expect so little of him. But you know what? When people are attorneys and... um, doctors and people who have degrees and intelligence and have the ability to process information and they choose to engage in this conspiracy. I just assume it's because there's entertainment value in it. And I think that we all have a responsibility. I'm all for joking, but I think we have a responsibility to speak facts on this, especially because there are real people who are losing their lives or fighting for their lives right now. But, um, you know, Donna, you don't even know this, and no one on this cause knows this, but I actually have two members of my family who are on respirators in the hospital right now fighting for their lives for Mm -hmm. COVID-19. One who's um, very close to my immediate family. So um, it's not a game. It's very serious. Um, We also know, like, leaders in our city who are are very beloved and respected and just voices of light who are struggling and it just hurts me that anyone would try to politicize or, or um, kind of do a disinformation campaign on something that is so very dangerous that I, I have 
family members who are looking at not having a yeah. father, oh. you know, soon, yeah. if, if things don't turn around. It's not a joke. I mean, is, is there some, there's something to be said about this age of social media when everybody has access to whatever information that they want to have access to and the ability to spread it, be it factual or not. Everyone um, is a journalist. Right. <laughs> And so how, especially as people uh, with, you know, an infrastructure of knowledge and access to uh, credible sources, uh, especially Kim and Ned, how are you combating um, the spread of misinformation? Well, my, my main uh, technique is to try and use a, a credible source. So when you know, some knucklehead says that, well, Trump says this anti-malarial drug will, you know, fix coronavirus. Um, I like to kind of bring in an actual medical doctor who has said, no, actually, it, it, there's no proof of that. Um, because I think we have, to some extent, uh, given people who've had success in one field, uh, a lot of uh, authority broadly um, you know, that, oh, you made a million dollars or a billion dollars selling a tech product. Clearly, you must know a lot about lots of things. And let's ask you to run a government or let's ask you to do urban development or whatever uh, when those two things are completely unrelated to each other. Yeah. 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 What about um, you, Kim? The same. And, and, not being afraid to call people out when they're being irresponsible with the way they use um, information or disinformation. Um, I think elevating uh, professionals, uh, I think kind of giving people history lessons and explaining. Um, but I don't know. I mean, what I, the, I think one of the more tragic thing, one of the more tragic um, stories that I've read in the last few days was a poll that showed like 55% of Americans agree with the leadership that we've seen in this crisis on the federal level. Oh my and, gosh. You know, when you see things like that, I mean, I have to say, I do get kind of, it drags me down a little because you just think, what evidence do can be provided to you that things aren't going well? I don't understand. I mean, I understand that a person who is has, you know, the word president in front of his name um, is just automatically gets a certain amount of um, respect and and but I don't I mean the facts are the facts I mean I think if you just look at at comparing this to um, you know other um, pandemics and the way that they were handled I mean obviously no leader has control over uh, what how a pandemic evolves um, from a you know medical perspective but they do have control over how we deal with it and there's just yeah. no defending what we've experienced in this country and um, but unfortunately there are people who are willing to do that or to make allowances in a way that is just disheartening so but I think that um, all we can do is just continue to um, just fight disinformation with facts and with um, people who are credible and you know, people have to make a decision for themselves whether they want to be tricked. Yeah, I, I think that all of that hmm. is true. Um, I think that we have a responsibility to call people out. So I agree with Kim on that. 
Um, you know, when Alex Jones said that the Sandy Hook parents were actors and these kids didn't really pass away, that was horrible. And it's also horrible when you have people who it's not because they don't have the expertise. It's because they choose not to believe the experts because they've just chosen to ignore things that are observable. Um, when they pass mis misinformation around for any reason, I think that um, there's something about that. The people shouldn't feel free to do that and have respect. And um, we're in a time right now where it's time for some public accountability. And I'm of the mindset that if you say something like that, um, you know, I've got to correct you. And then also, you know, point out the flaw and why you said it. Um, it's, I don't know. I don't feel very polite right now. And it's because, as you pointed out, um, you know, last <laughs> night in the middle of me watching Real Housewives, I got some information and I couldn't do anything but cry last night. And so, um, you know, it's just not it's not right. helpful. Um, but I do want to say something also, Kim, about what you were saying about um a president not being able to control what happens during um, a pandemic, because I feel as though in this instance, the president did have information and right. did have the ability right. to influence how things went. Absolutely. No. And that, what I meant was I, he can't, he didn't control the genesis of it, but he can't, he definitely could have had a tremendous amount of um, control over how, when it, when it hit the shores, our response to it. We should have been better prepared, better informed. Um, you know, so no, in no way right. am I giving him a pass. I'm just saying I'm, I'm no, just I, saying you can't say you know, he didn't create the virus, but he created this in my in my way of thinking. Right. A lot of, he, he bears a lot of responsibility for the severity that we are so seeing. I absolutely guarantee you that if Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton were the president right now, we would be in a far better position Today. No doubt about it. Um, no in in fact, it. Barack Obama did have H1N1 during his presidency, right? Right. And Ebola. And Ebola. And neither and Ebola. of them and Ebola. Sure. So I think that, you know, mm -hmm. there is a world role for the president to play. Um, this concept Absolutely. that America for Americans, and we don't have to worry about what happens in the world, and we'll just wait till it comes here, and then it becomes a problem, is so ignorant. It's like we have ceased trying to provide world leadership on anything. And we've decided to, you know, just, I don't know, um, no longer be in any way a, a factor in international affairs. And um, right. I feel as though much more should have been done to guide not only what happened here, but in other parts of the world, which is what we've done Absolutely. in the past. I mean, yeah, he disbanded uh, um, organizations that could have stopped it or could have at least, um, we could have addressed it globally yeah. or in you know at its genesis instead of waiting until it hit american but even after it hit american shores we still didn't do right. anything well, and we the, tried to line with we still didn't do anything and, and being you know hoodwinked when you know yeah. we after we knew yeah. by a hoax meanwhile they were all oh, selling it, stock it, right oh, there you go again there you go again but you want to know the other thing that he was doing, uh, he, he was arguing with governors, particularly the Michigan governor, who is actually trying to do something to stop this spread. He's sparring with our governor, Kim. Uh, what, what, what was the governor's administration's response to Donald Trump 
calling her out on Twitter. Well, I mean, I think the governor spoke very well for herself. Um, you know, I think what we have to do is keep our eyes on what's important. And I think that's what the governor has done. I think that, I mean, I think that she was rightfully astonished that you had a president of the United States States who was saying um, it's not, you know, essentially setting governors up in competition with each other and with the federal government for resources. I mean, I don't think any person who's a leader on the state level would not think that that is an absolutely astonishing kind of course of of action for a president to take. And the president and the and the governor simply, you know, expressed her astonishment. And the president, in his typical bullying fashion, tried to attack her. But of course, anyone who's paying attention will look at a track record of Gretchen Whitmer. Um, for COVID-19 response and a track record of a Donald Trump. And I think you would recognize who has the upper hand. Kim, that's a great great point you made that, you know, he's pitting states against each other. And we don't have a federal health care system in this country. We we have fragmented private health care systems and state responses and sort of loose coalitions of public-private partnerships. And so when a state step, when the states sort of end up in this place where they're left on their own, you see states like a California and now in New York who are rightly trying to aggressively respond to the healthcare crisis that they're experiencing in their state. And they're doing exactly what, you know, human nature says, go buy all the, the people, the, the protective equipment, right? Go buy all the ventilators, go buy that. Literally, my brother-in-law just got hired by Cuomo last week to do that. Oh, and he's mm-hmm. he's going to try and buy everything he can all over the world so that people in New York have access to it. And what that means is that people in Michigan won't. And although we're up next, so right. hopefully we'll be we'll be able to right. get in there or maybe GM will hook us up. But then the people in Indiana and Wisconsin, they won't. Right. I guarantee you, if Barack Obama was right. still president right now, he would be having a conversation with all the governors and saying, no, 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 no. I catch any of y'all doing that, there'll be hell to pay. This is how it's going to work, okay? I'm going to do the assigning based on numbers and who needs, and we're going to order it centrally, and yada, yada, yada. But that's leadership. We don't have that right now. You know, I I wonder about the normal, though, because I cannot imagine that after this, um, there will be a time where people do not use a lot more protective gear. Um, I think that um, as we move on, people are going to change the way they interact in public. I can't see it not happening that way because it feels as though even after this original initial curve goes by, people are going to um, still be at risk for infection for a number of years. I don't, I don't know that you can yeah. eliminate the virus in that period mm-hmm. of time. Sure. And so I really right. see some new normals that are probably going to take place that we haven't even imagined and industries where people are going to walk around in face masks. You see that happening in other parts of the world. And I think it may happen here. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Mm-hmm. I mean, when do you think you'll feel comfortable? You know, I mean, this is going to change our worldview, I think. Um, and so I think you're right. I think that it, it is going to change how we um, behave in public. It's going to change how we view. I mean, I'm never going to push the elevator button again the same way. <laughs> yeah. Ever. I mean, I just can't see that ever happening again because, I mean, even when we get the all clear sign, um, sign, I just don't think that 
you know, people are going to have that level of confidence. But I think that when um, you, I mean, this is kind of pointed out, as you said, uh, as we've said, um, the folly of not having um, at least a, a federal approach yeah. to, you know, public health, to how, uh, you know, and, and I think that it also points out the folly of this idea that the market oh. is God and the market controls everything. I mean, I, that, that debate, and which is being played out in Congress right now, that this idea that, you know, this trickle down nonsense that has been disproven time and time again, and we're still relying on this idea that, um, you know, I mean, that's what's driving Donald Trump's whole approach with putting the states against each other and, and leveraging when he could leverage the federal government's buying power to help everybody. Right. Well, can, can we? him making the choice like oh no i'll let you guys fight it out and i'll just sit back can, and can we sit there for a minute though cam i want to talk about that in the context of your role at the state um you know mm-hmm. we've had in the city of detroit so many challenges where um, the needs of poor people have been just underserved for decades right and so you know right. how excited i was there was going to be this um task force at the state level just focusing on poverty because 20 mm-hmm. years ago, if you said the word poverty was a bad word, we don't use that. We call people low income. And I'm like, no, if you're poor, you're poor. And we need to call that out because you can't fix something you don't right. need, Right. So now we have that. And all of a sudden, within like two weeks time, water is being restored. DTE is restoring mm-hmm. service. Evictions are ending. No tax foreclosures. Mm-hmm. Free bus rides. We're setting up places for people to shelters for people to sleep and food distribution centers all over the city. And I'm like, whoa, you know, this is great. Right. right? And I wonder. I had a moment last last week where it looked like Congress was going to do the right thing. And even the president was on board with, you know, some ideas that I think people, everyone on this call would probably really be on board with, you know, um, some of the ideas about how to deliver health care in a way that people have more access to health care, how to deliver, um, you know, cash assistance to people. I mean, things that we just thought were unthinkable in the United States that were being debated. And I, I had a moment where I just thought, did we just rope a dope Donald Trump into like being to right? Yeah, to, to give people human rights, right? You know, it's, right. it's I mean, something it's, it's, that... It's, it's such a horrible way to have to do it. But, but it's also it's very offensive, gonna, of course, Kim, It's very offensive. You know, yeah. Yeah, Mitch McConnell, you know, kind of raised his ugly head again, and we're back to, you know, no, we don't care about poor people. But yeah, I mean, I just think that, um, I think that that it, it was interesting that kind of people like you, Donna and Orlando and others who, and, you know, uh, who have for years been talking about the need to have a real strategy, a real plan, a real infrastructure uh, to help lift people out of poverty and it's funny because I actually struggle even with the word poverty too Donna because and I and I recognize I think being in this work has helped me recognize it is because even though I think I'm pretty aware of of um of how words are used that word has been infused with so much shame by a culture that has vilified poor people that you're right I mean the word poor does make kind of the hairs on the back of your your neck stand up because it seems like a judgment word. And so I think that, um, you know, when we call this a, a poverty task force, and it's probably better called an anti-poverty task force, we're not cheering for poverty, we're actually cheering for the eradic- eradication of poverty. But um, I think that, you know, to have the um, vision to see that that's a priority. When you when 
um, you know, you see people like Reverend William, um, William Barber and others who have tried to keep that on the national agenda and it has fallen off time and time again. Um, so I'm, I'm very proud of the state of Michigan for recognizing that we can and should be a leader yeah, on this so, front. So my question, though, is, um, and I, I agree with everything that you said, um, I think that, you know, for me, when we don't use the word poor, it's like being colorblind. It doesn't change the condition. Mm-hmm. It just changes people's recognition. Right. You don't have to pay attention to my pain as long as you don't call it out. But right. um, I think right. that um, one of the things I'm wondering is, do you think that there will be a new normal where we're going to start really caring about and start delivering on a social safety net? I'm not talking about Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell, but I mean society as a mm-hmm. whole. Do you think that the tolerance and the appetite for doing that has increased as a result of this crisis? So I have a lot of thoughts on that because I've been arguing a bunch today with people who've told me that, you know, you're starting to see Nolan Finley came out and said the, the, the cure is worse than the disease. And that's apparently the right, that's the new talking point on the right. Um, That all of this uh, uh, response and shutting down the economy is going to really hurt people more than the disease would, which is really disingenuous. They really just mean it's going to hurt business owners. Uh, right. a bunch um but but that's their argument and um someone you know one of my arguments uh, counter arguments is that look you can't solve the medical issues with a check but you can solve some of the the, the economic and social issues with a check and uh, 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 donna as you mentioned earlier the the argument that oh we can't put a moratorium on water shutoffs or on evictions that's just not economically feasible. That argument's gone because apparently it is. Right. We're doing it. Apparently. Right. Yeah. And, and the reality is we can stroke a check to fix that. So we can go to the water department. We can go to the utilities and say, how much money did you lose because of, you know, people who aren't paying their electric bill? Okay. Here's $28 million or here's the, you know, here's the number. And suddenly people have access to health care and education and housing and, you know, some basic human rights and things like that. So can I can I can, can I jump in and just name that I think the underlying issue around will to do it, number one, from my vantage point, is racism. Everybody got uh, a problem with Dr. Martin Luther King when he started talking about economic equality, because that's going to cost somebody something. Right. right. And now that we are seeing uh, a, I don't even know if it's a restoration because I don't even know if people had these kind of rights before, not at least not in my lifetime, but I'll go ahead and say it for lack of a better phrase, restoration of human rights. Is it because that there are people in the elite and the top 1% who will be affected if some of these structures aren't in place for the most marginalized among us? And so I'll use the water for an example. Poor people not having water amidst uh, a public health pandemic can potentially affect me as uh, a one percenter. So let's figure out how to make that happen so that I can remain in my bubble. Does that make sense? It makes a ton of sense. But here's my here's my somewhat cynical cynical approach: is that look, we we are to to stop the health crisis that's uh, that is upon us we're going to have to significantly damage our economy. Like this is, this has sent us into a recession. You might, it might even be a depression, but 
when we were in a good economy, and we could argue whether or not we were really in a good economy a year ago, you know, based mm-hmm. on the, who was who was benefiting and who wasn't. But by many of our traditional measures, it was a good economy. Were we spending any time working with the people who are the most vulnerable in our society? Um, I mean, were they getting the attention they deserve? No. But now, since we were, the economy is going to be so bad for everyone. I think I'm I'm somewhat cynical and optimistic to your point, Orlando. Now that it's affecting elites, that we will do things that are more comprehensive that will end up helping everybody. You know, I'm mm. going to just um, use a little bit of age privilege here because I'm the oldest person in this room, and I remember <laughs> a time when there was a social safety net. I remember a time mm. when we had um, aid for dependent children was higher in terms of the amount of money it was providing. And I think at one point we were um, providing um, cash benefits to about 87% of people, uh, families with children um, who were poor. There was a time when general assistance existed in this nation or in this state for sure. There was a time when public housing existed in this city And I remember terms like social safety net being things that people wanted to protect. There was a time when the the United Way was not trying to help people become self-sufficient. It was trying to help meet people's basic needs. And then we moved Mm -hmm. away from that into this whole concept Mm -hmm. that all charities should be used to help people achieve self-sufficiency. So we stopped paying money into programs like leader dogs to the blind. So I guess the blind wouldn't need leader dogs after more. I don't anymore. I don't know. Um, mentally mm. disabled people were not going to have struggles anymore. And it was an unrealistic paradigm that we created that allowed certain people to just persist in misery. And, you know, but mm. I remember that um, tech, not, not tech Kennedy, um, John Kennedy. Oh, come on now. Robert Kennedy, Kennedy. somebody save me. Robert Kennedy's whole focus was an anti-poverty campaign. He was going and looking at childhood Mm -hmm. hunger um, and trying to address those things. And so I think that we can imagine a time when we did a better job because in my childhood, we did a better job. Um, There was a time Mm -hmm, in my childhood where people were going to college on Pell Grants and Pell Grants paid almost the entire cost of going to college. So um, let's open up our imaginations to um, believe that it's possible that we will be in a different paradigm than one where the only thing that counts is money. And now that certain- But I think that's why I'm sorry, I was going to say I think that's why intersectionality is so important. I think Orlando's point is so salient because when you look at the um, resistance to this idea that people who need help um Uh, should get help, a lot of it is grounded in, there's a reason that Ronald Ronald Reagan, when he created the welfare queen trope, Mm -hmm. he he picked a black woman on purpose. Yeah, it's well branded, yes. Right, and so I think that as we have, you know, that's why I think when people ask why isn't Bernie Sanders getting more traction among black people, and you know, I don't want to get into like a democratic uh, debate, but I do think that a, a discussion about class that doesn't also engage race and gender um, is just not going to move the needle for people like a large a majority of people who live in cities like Detroit. 
Um, a big part of my job, I think, with this poverty task force is making visible the people who are living in poverty in places like Lake County, right. Michigan. Because poverty is not something that is restricted to Detroit, Flint, and Benton Harbor and mm-hmm. Muskegon. Mm-hmm. It's all over the state. There is not one county in the state of Michigan that has an ALICE rate, and ALICE stands for, you know, asset limited, income constrained, um, employed. These are, you know, the working poor for all intents and purposes. There's not one county that has a less than 30% ALICE rate in the entire state right. of Michigan. So this idea that um, it's, it's widespread, and I think that the emergence of ideas like the kind of ideas that Andrew Yang was proposing, um, we even had some Republicans who seemed to be grasping in recent years the importance of not vilifying the poor necessarily, of, of um, creating pathways. Uh, you know, we might not all want to get there the same way, but at least there has been a discussion that I think has opened up among some, but then I think this made other people double down more, the people who yeah. are really committed. So when you start having like a little bit of agreement, a little bit of loosening, then you, you know, necessarily the nature of politics is that then you have kind of the people who, who think it's their job to conserve, to kind of go into over, overdrive. And that's how we end up with the mess that we're Yeah, in and right if now. I could just say so um, the- real quickly that Bernie Sanders' ideas are popular. Bernie Sanders, the man, is not. So if you look at yeah, the yeah. Democratic platform under Joe Biden, a lot of those ideas have been popularized even in the Democratic platform. Um, maybe not as extreme, maybe not as complete, but a lot of those ideas have become things that people are really demanding in our society right now. So I'm right. an optimist, and I believe that you cannot kill a whole forager. Yeah, mm-hmm. so the governor... Uh, Michigan's governor made national headlines today issuing an executive order to stay home and stay safe. And Kim, I want to I want to rope you back in um, uh, as uh, someone within the administration focused on economic opportunity. uh, How do you foresee uh, the state's most marginalized populations coping with this executive order that the governor uh, Will say, said that will go into effect uh, midnight, uh, very early Tuesday morning. How how is this going to? I I imagine that it will affect people in poverty different than other populations. What do you say to that? I mean, I think obviously you're right. Um, uh, although I do think that we are going to see entire categories of people who have never had to rely on support and assistance from governmental entities who are going to have to do that for the first time. I think that's going to be emotionally unsettling for a lot of people. I think it's going to be, um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be rough sledding for a while. Um, mm. I, do I think it's going to um, have a, a much deeper impact for those who are living in poverty? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, they have a, a much smaller margin and we've seen um, even when we, we hear kind of the happy talk about the economy before it collapsed, of course, but, um, you know, where you saw the top 20%, the top even 1% who've had exponential growth in their portfolio, how little that affects those who are, you know, the Alice rate in a state like Michigan has actually grown during that same time. So um, economic instability is not new. However, we, I don't think it, any, no one on this call has ever, or no one, you know, who's having this discussion has ever seen what we're about to go through. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that it's going to require incredible um, creativity 
uh, incredible, um, I don't want to say generosity because we have such economic inequality in our society that it's not even about generosity. It's about right, writing um, kind of a uh, slow um, um, kind of development that we've had of this mm-hmm. kind of society where a small group of people have all the money. <laughs> and so yeah. um, now that's just a lot more visible. And I think the people who have all the money in some in some ways, it's going to be in their best interest to, you know, so you'll see, you'll start seeing some landlords, um, you know, loosening their rent um, requirements and that kind of thing. And, 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 you know, I think that those are the right things to do, but I think we have to have a much deeper conversation about how we got here in the first place and why people don't have the resources, why people don't have um, a month um, of, of money set aside for emergencies. Mm-hmm. It's not because they're irresponsible necessarily. It's not because it's because they're not, they don't have the same earning power that, you know, we used to have at a time when we would pay people what they were worth or pay people, um, you know, uh, instead of paying people as little as possible, we recognize that if you give people a decent wage or just a decent salary, um, you know, you're helping the entire economy, including the people who are purchasing your goods or yeah. services. So um, I think that uh, we are going to, you know, so what we're trying to do is we're having a lot of conversations with those business leaders. I mean, that's why I think it's really important the things that Ned is trying to do to, to create opportunity and to um, help support small business owners, especially. I mean, I think we want to have a society where we're encouraging entrepreneurship and, you know, this is going to be a real challenge to entrepreneurship. It is. I mean, we know that a lot of business owners just don't have the same margins um, as others. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, to the extent that we can help, um, you know, shore up business, I mean, I think that's very important. But we also cannot walk away from individuals in the society who, because of, um, you know, this catastrophic uh, me- uh, medical crisis, um, are finding themselves out of work or maybe weren't even working before all this stuff happened and just have absolutely no margin now. And um, Michigan, when you look at things like the TANF, how TANF dollars are distributed, they're just, we are just kind of the worst actors in a lot of ways when you talk about a social safety net for the state of Michigan. It's just not there in a lot of ways. And so I'm hoping out of this horrible tragedy will come a real discussion about the need to have a social safety net, not just in times of crisis, but um, for for all for all times. That's a standard. Well, Kim, you, yeah. I think you nailed it when you said yeah. we're not asking for generosity, given the inequality that exists. I, I would argue we're just asking for some basic humanity for some people, and right. it's in their best interest because if they don't step up now, um, it's not. They're at a very huge risk of it being taken away from them. Um, the, you know, we start getting to this level of inequality that we have in this country. We haven't seen it in 80, 90, a hundred years. Uh, you, you start getting into, let's get the pitchforks and the torches out. And right. when you see, you know, the Bezos of the world or people closer to home who are right now sitting on billions and billions of dollars saying, Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not giving my workers paid time off to help out in a public health crisis. Right. Man, I, you know, we were already going to have a a, a ballot initiative for progressive income tax in Michigan this year, which unfortunately has been disrupted by all this gathering the signature. 
But you don't think that doesn't yeah. come back with a vengeance next year? You know, I in, in, we talked yeah. briefly about my, the fund that we've been raising to help small businesses. But in the last week, I've called every rich person I know. And I am, you know, I'm a mediocre white dude. I know lots mm-hmm. of rich people. So I've been calling all kinds of people. <laughs> and some of them have been great. And some of them who have lots of money. I mean, like, you know, do I get a G6 or a G7 <clears throat> money? Wow. Like, no, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I can't help you. That's the kind of stuff that is really going to come home to roost because people are, people are taking yeah. uh, note right now. They're making lists right now. They're looking at what businesses are being supportive, what people are leading. You know, the CEO of consumers came out today, Patty Popian wrote a million dollar check million for check. small businesses yeah. in Jackson. Yeah. You don't think a million dollars goes a long way for small businesses yeah. in Jackson. Woo. She's going to help a right. hundred businesses out there or 200 businesses stay in business. Right. You know, yeah, Dan Gilbert, to, Dan Gilbert came out. Today. Well, Ned, I want I, you to I want you to talk to us a little bit about the Small Business uh, Stabilization Fund uh, and who you're partnering with, and who can apply. And like, what is the the monetary sure. goal? Uh, you sort of touched on it, but I want to just give you the opportunity. So here's to the talk premise. About it. The premise is that, uh, as Kim touched upon earlier, even in the entrepreneurial community, there's a real disparity of margins of uh, uh of economic security so uh jp morgan did a study last year 47 percent of small businesses in this country have left less than two weeks of cash on hand so almost half but if you go into black and brown neighborhoods in this country it goes up over 90 percent so um here you are looking at virtually all of the small businesses in detroit having less than two weeks cash on hand and we're facing getting locked down for a month or two months. So basically, almost every business in the city of Detroit is at risk right now. So we stepped in and we said, okay, what are we going to do about that? And some of those rich people I called told me, no, 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 it's cool. The SBA is going to make loans. You know, this and that. And they don't understand that, that in these communities, especially small businesses in general, but especially in these communities are operating on smaller and smaller margins they are already taking on as have, have as much debt as they can service. And it's not like if you're in a restaurant, there's pent up demand. So if you open up your restaurant again in two months, um, Orlando, you're not going to go and eat two dinners. Are you? No, you're still going to eat one dinner. You're not going to get your nails done twice, right? You're going to get it done once as opposed to like maybe a manufacturing business where there's a backlog of orders or, you know, things like that, that you've got to make up. So there is no capacity to take on more debt. So we looked at that and said, what do they need? They need money. When do they need it? They need it now. So I'm really proud of my team because in less than four days, they looked at models around the country. Seattle, which is, you know, a few weeks ahead of us in this process, um, had set up a a, a similar type program. We said, great, let's uh, steal, I mean, uh, transfer best practices in what they're doing. And we set up, we changed it a little bit to, to better fit our market. But we basically said, here's a way to get businesses up to $5,000 of cash. They can use it for payroll. They can use it for rent. They could use it for inventory, whatever they need to, to keep the lights on to, to, to general business expense. And we, you know what we said? We don't want to be very restrictive. And we don't want to, we don't want to make it too many hoops to get through. We want the money, we want to err on the side of speed and trusting the people closest 
that if we give this business owner three or four or $5,000, they'll do what's in the best interest of their business to keep it open. And you know, small business owners, they're going to take care of their people if they can. So that was our, that was our thought. We're, we're targeting the smallest, most vulnerable businesses, 10 or fewer employees. Um, owners have to be like 80% of area media income or lower because, you know, Mitch Album owns a business in Detroit, but we're not giving his water rice company any money, you know? So those kinds of things. Um, and we were able to raise, uh, in, in, in about six days now, we've raised over $400,000. All of it philanthropically. Wow. Um, but we've had applications open for a couple of days. We're sitting on, last I looked, uh, a million and a quarter worth of need in three days. Yeah. We know there are wow. 14,000 businesses in the city of Detroit with fewer than 50 people in it. So I want How do we help all those businesses? I want to thank you for doing that, Ned, um, and for yeah, ahead, investing Donna. your time and effort to help um, small business owners. I know that at ECN, we're very concerned about helping those on Mac Avenue, a lot of the fragile business owners. Um, I remember um, that sometimes crisis really does help people understand their inter- interdependence. And mm-hmm. in fact, sometimes it also helps us to remember to be compassionate. And so I want to be an optimist who believes that somehow all of this will help revive the social compact, will revive the desire to be there for others, not out of charity, but out of love and out of compassion and all all of those things that have kept us separated for so long. So right now we're all living in our separate homes. We can't hang out anymore outside of Zoom, but we're all dealing with the same thing dealing with it differently because some people have more assets than others, but we're all scared. We're all struggling to find toilet paper. We all can't find grits anymore. Um, and um, we, we're, we're dealing with some issues. I, I, is it possible that this will bring us together from a, a spiritual level, do you think, where people really become more caring in their attitudes? I think so. You know, we, my family took a walk yesterday. We've taken walks basically every day since we've been locked up. And uh, I tell you, it felt a lot like right after September 11th, you know, every per people we saw out on the street, we maintained our, our six feet distance, but they all smiled and waved and said hi, like, you know, people we didn't know. But it, it definitely felt from that perspective, like um, we were all in this together and we were all going through sort of a communal experience. I mean, this is going to be the thing you know, 20 and 30 years from now that our kids and grandkids are going to talk about, like, what did you do during the quarantine? What did you do, you know, uh, back then? Sort of like we might have talked about the the, the Challenger explosion or 9-11 or something. So um, I hope so. I hope you're right. I think so. I'd like to think so. I hope so. But, you know, I think that we've gone through, I mean, all those tragedies that you just mentioned, we've gone through those and we pulled together in the short term. And we have relied on um, our generosity, um, charity. And I think that because so many uh, nonprofits and charities, you know, stepped up after in in the wake of a lot of those horrible tragedies, um, some people have kind of latched onto this idea that they are the only, you know, whereas we used to have a government infrastructure to deal with, um, emergencies to deal with um, tragedies so that uh, we we could, you know, attack it in a way that was systematic and, um, you know, in a way that only government can deliver. 
Um, then we had people who vilified the government, um, even among those who benefit from the government the most. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I, I think that my hope, my, my sincere hope is that this will help us have that return to the just obvious fact that government can deliver in a way that you're never going to get from philanthropy because for nothing else, just the sheer volume of government and just the fact that, I mean, there was a time when we had the brightest minds. I mean, maybe not so much now, but we had the brightest minds at the table in government. (laughs) We had people who truly were passionate about serving um, humanity in government. They, They really saw it as public service. And I am, I am hopeful that we will have a return to, you know, this, this uh, appreciation for that, that infrastructure instead of what has been for the last 20 to 30 years, this constant vilifying of, you know, public education and, and um, um, even, you know, what we're experiencing now where you have an entire department that was in place to try to prevent what we have right now from happening that just got completely gutted gutted because a businessman thought, oh, we just hire those people we we need them. (laughs) We don't need them between, you know, disasters which is just a a very non-governmental way of looking at things. That's the way the businessman looks at and by the way, an unsuccessful businessman. I think that it's very important (laughs) that. Kim, I really appreciate your point about the sustainability of of this human spirit. And I think uh, one, one of the tenets that could aid in this being sustainable is that when you have a breakdown of systems like the one that we're witnessing now, uh, we have an opportunity to change the system because one of the things, one of the reasons why it hasn't been so sustainable is because the system is so hard to crack. And we're talking about systemic and cyclical policy that has continued to perpetuate oppression against the most marginalized among us. And so when the system is depressed in a way now where we're just trying to figure out how to stay afloat, I think we also should be figuring out how to rebuild it in a way that makes this 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 human spirit and this and this generosity um, uh, sustainable, this interconnectedness uh, sustainable. And you know, uh, I'm also an optimist, Donna. I'm hoping for something, <laughs> for something like that. Um, after we, uh, and I think the gift of where this, we are is so. making this kind of thing visible. When I served on the Wayne State Board, I would. We miss you. Come back. <laughs> <laughs> we need you, Kim. We need you. <laughs> Don't do that to me. Oh. Okay, so uh, you abandoned me. Moving on. But, but, you know, one of the conversations I would have all the time is people would say, you know, tuition is out of control, tuition is spiraling, and my, my family cannot afford, and I would say, you know, this is a political decision, right? Because there's a reason, Donna, when you mentioned earlier about how people were able to go to college using resources in the past. When I went to Wayne State, even though I went on a full scholarship, but even if I hadn't, I would have been able to easily right. afford going to Wayne State University because it was affordable. And we have made, it's not even visible for people now that the reason that that was the case, it's not just like money, it's, um, college became unaffordable 
because of decisions that are making it made on the local level, the state has decided to disinvest. Right. And that was a political decision. It's just like it could be, be a political decision to investigate him. And I think that the, the gift that we might have of this terrible tragedy is it makes it visible. This is what happens when you mm-hmm. don't have a functioning yeah. government. Yeah. And I, so if we can make it visible for people, maybe they will demand the change that you know, people have become accustomed to uh, the, or uh, a reversal of the kind of policies that people have become. Accustomed yeah, I think to. so. I think that part of it is a shift in attitudes. I think the Anne Rand's thinking started to impact people. I think the whole concept of enlightened self-interest and makers mm-hmm. and takers wow. and all of that, and it becomes almost yeah. like a public way of saying things. And I hear people who are ordinarily good people talking about, oh, free stuff. I don't believe in free stuff. And it's like, stop listening to Rush Limbaugh and you will stop talking like that, right? <laughs> and so I have to believe right. that um, that we have responsibility. <laughs> Those of us working in the public domain, and I'm super excited about what you're doing in Lansing because I believe that um, what you're doing is going to really help open up dialogue and help create opportunities where we're going to start talking about what's happening in our state differently and therefore hopefully making different kinds of policy. Um, and that I really appreciate the work that you're doing at Tech Town because you're an incubator of ideas. I mean, people don't just go there for small businesses, but every time I go into Tech Town, I feel like I come out a little bit smarter because there's all of these people gathered there thinking about how to reshape the world. And I think that that's really what's going to make change in our society. What do you think? Well, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm a little bit more optimistic about um, where we're going to be on the other side of this for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I think economically it's going to be rough, but I think that's going to force us, much like the Depression did, to put in place, because we've seen what happens without that strong social safety net, we're going to put a lot more of it in place over the, the next couple of years. And two, I have a lot of faith in technology not unfettered technology, not that the market's going to save everything, but I don't think that COVID-19 is going to turn into something that uh, causes this type of reaction again, because I think three to six months from now, we will have a whole set of vaccines. We will have a whole set of treatments. It will turn into much more like the flu where clearly you want to get your shot and you want to, you know, be smart but you don't have to lock down the whole world to stop it. So there are already tons of researchers have sprung into action, uh, testing all sorts of stuff. Don't listen to Donald Trump. Don't go take that memorial drug that just killed somebody in Arizona because they saw it on Fox news. Um, but, but I think real researchers are going to come up with some really interesting ways uh, to, to mitigate it. And I think that, that happened, you know, that's what we've been working on at TechDown for a while. When we start with things like Detroit Urban Solutions, how do we bring technology to solve problems? Technology is really good at it, actually. It creates new ones, too, but it's really good at solving problems when we, when we try. I think we're going to see more um, uh, a demand for the public sector to step up and solve some more problems. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a techie, I'm a techie myself. Super techie. Yeah, thank you. Love technology. Go ahead, Donna. All of that. And I think that it will also help to promote new ways of us interacting and connecting with each other. And if we can harness the good of that, um, that's always going to be good. I think that um, the world changes and somehow um, those of us who are working to try to promote change 
um, can make a difference. Kim, do you see your role at the state as also harnessing some of those changes in thought as well as actions? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, the way that we've organized our work with the Poverty Task Force, we have, you know, obviously the task force is made up of state employees, the state um, directors of 19 different state departments, um, who are all pretty occupied with other stuff. So, you know, it can't be their number one focus. So we have created work groups. Um, we've asked them for their, their greatest minds, for the most innovative thinkers, for the people who are really passionate about their work, who are going to conferences like the one you were supposed to go to in um, New York this week, Donna, um, uh, who are going to, who are, you know, reading the, the, um, the um, trade publications, who understand what other states are doing that are really innovative and who have their own ideas so that we can be, um, so we can incubate new ideas, but also better deliver the, you know, longstanding ideas that are already in place. I mean, some of the things that we need to address in our state are just, we're just doing stuff wrong. Um, you know, when we talk about TANF, when we talk about um, the way that we have kind of dismantled the safety net, built, rebuilding the safety net has got to be a priority of our work. But then we also have to have innovative ideas to help lift more people um, in Michigan out of poverty so that they're not, you know, we want for people to be able to live in poverty with dignity, but we want them to ultimately transcend poverty. And so I think that you need to have that push and pull. You need to have those people who are thinking about how we can better deliver what we already have. And then also those new ideas that can help the state build partnerships um, with philanthropy, with um, organization like, organizations like yours, so that we can have those innovative ideas so that more people will um, not have to live in poverty. And so that's the, the, the exciting thing Great. about this so that's great. I really, uh, you, I want to, I want to wrap it up by just giving out uh, some some information as it relates to the executive order that came from the governor's office today uh, for the stay home, stay safe um, executive order. So things like your grocery stores, takeout food, the pharmacy, uh, going for a walk, going to the hospital, or getting gas, all of that stuff um, is still um, encouraged, right? Um, uh, you, they, they, I wouldn't they, say encouraged, Orlando. Uh, the website, uh, Michigan. Well, well, what what she said was well, she the governor did say yes. We encourage you to go right. for a walk. Yes. You know, keeping your distance and things like that. Uh, that that that's what I meant. Okay, and the other things that right. are available to you uh, are your grocery stores. She uh, she implored us not to hoard, but we but to you know be generous and be neighborly uh your gas stations and things are still open um w this is what she is saying not to do you can't leave home unless your employer designates you as a critical infrastructure worker you can't participate in any public gatherings you can't visit anyone in the hospital or nursing home or residential care facilities and you are, you can't go to the mall or restaurants. She specifically right. said, this is no longer a recommendation. This is um, an order. So we want to make sure that uh, people have that information. We imagine that you may have questions. And so we want to direct you to michigan.gov forward slash coronavirus, or you can also visit uh, the cdc.gov forward slash coronavirus. 
uh, to look at the frequently the frequently asked questions there. Did I miss anything? Well, I just uh, think experts? that it's important for us to know that you know the governor uh, has loosened some of the requirements for um, being able to be eligible for um, unemployment. We now have a state executive order that is uh, has a moratorium on evictions. We have um, we're seeing on the local level in Detroit and um, Wayne County, um, you know, efforts to try to halt. You know, as, as Donna talked about earlier, um, things that were we were told were not possible have not been made possible. I think it's really important that um, people know that at least on a state level, there is a recognition of the fact that we know that individuals are going to be hurting because of this. Um, you know, horrible thing, and that we are going to, and that we need to have um, strategies in place so that people are able to um, have shelter, have food, have the basic staples of life that are important. Um, and I think that if they visit our um, coronavirus website, they'll see some of the things that the governor has put in place, loosening some of the requirements for childcare so that um, those frontline workers who have to work um, will have access to childcare for their children. Um, you know, those kind of um, strategies that she's putting in place to try, that we're putting to get to place as a state to try to make what is bound to be, you know, a very difficult time for our state more um, easier for people to navigate. And so I would just encourage your um, listeners to to look at, at the website if they have access to the web, um, to uh, a lot of our offices, our frontline offices, like for you know, um, for unemployment, are no longer um, open. The actual offices are closing down because of the governor's order, but there will be access to telephone um, operators who can help you with your unemployment, um, you know, with filing for unemployment and for understanding what other benefits you might be eligible at this difficult time. Um, yeah, I have that number yeah. too, right here, uh, Kim. Uh, the hotline is one eight 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 five three five six one three six. Again, that's one eight 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 five three five six one three six. You're listening to our special episode of Authentically Detroit, covering the COVID nineteen pandemic yeah, um, here could, in the city of Detroit. If I could just add that. Anything um, else, Kim? You know, come to the website. Yeah. Organizations like ECN. We're constantly updating our website. Um, or I mean, our Facebook page. We haven't gotten to our website yet, but we're constantly updating our Facebook page and soon our website. So like us on Facebook, like Authentically Detroit on Facebook, and we'll make sure to put information on there as well. Um, and, you know, if you know of any information that we're missing, give us a call or text us or email us, and we will make sure to include that because a knowledgeable community is obviously going to function a lot better. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Ned, how can uh, small businesses apply for, I know that you already overextended, but I have no doubt uh, because you have your mindset to it that you're going to figure out how to meet the need. How can Absolutely. I, I strongly encourage businesses to keep applying because I'm right now having conversations with foundations to say, hey, if you want to get money out the door to the people who need it the most immediately, I, I have them. I've got them teed up. So um, techtowndetroit.org is the website. Um, there is a big banner at the top of the, the 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 webpage that you know says click here for COVID-19 information there you will find our uh, 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 information about the program and the application it's in English it's in Spanish it's in Arabic it's in in Bengali 
Um, so, you know, we're trying to make it sure it's really accessible to everybody. Uh, and then, then you'll be able to apply right there online, get your documents in order. You're going to need some tax returns and some, you know, financial statements about your business, uh, and a W nine and things like that. But, uh, but it, we, we tried to make it as easy as possible to apply. And if you're so inclined, if you're a listener out there who just wants to help out techdowndetroit.org slash donate. We will happily get your money to a uh, Detroit small business in need. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, I want our thanks to Kim Trent and Ned Stabler for joining us today. Uh, we appreciate uh, you both taking the time. If you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Authentically Detroit or email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. Uh, so, Donna, you got any shout out? Douglas Edwards at um, yeah. Bridging, Bridging Communities. Listen to me. I don't even know her organization. Bridging um, Communities. Phyllis has taken the time while we are um, all in shutdown <laughs> to write a proposal on behalf of other community development corporations so that we can work collectively to help serve our community. So, I want to thank you, Phyllis, for your leadership. I understand she's had a loss, and I'm sorry for that, but otherwise I think she would have been here today to tell us about it, and maybe she'll come on in a future week. Um, and I want to say a prayer um, to everybody who knows somebody who is hospitalized or suffering, Kim. You, I think all of us know of at least one person who is struggling right now with this disease. We love you. We are thinking of you and praying that you get better. Yeah. We love you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I I, I want to shout out uh, you know, Kim and Ned the, uh, for joining us today and being so uh, flexible with, with time. Uh, so much information coming out um, at a rapid pace. And so I want to thank you both for uh, having the flexibility to join us and to make sure that our community receives uh, factual information. Thank you both. Do you guys want to shout out? Well, we just wanted to shout out you guys. Well, I'll speak for myself. I guess I'm going to speak for Ned, although I've, you know, I've been known to do that in the past. Um, I guess that's one reason he's probably glad I'm not on the Wayne State Board. Um, speaking for myself, I, I do want to just um, really thank you guys for continuing to offer just really intelligent um, discussion about Detroit in a really, um, in a way that really unpacks um, the history of this city. Um, you, you're not just speaking in a vacuum. You're not just talking um, talking points. You know, I think we've seen kind of this angry activism that's kind of um, bubbled up that is not informed by kind of um, like grounding in history, grounding in um, real solutions. And I just want to thank you for being really part of um, that part of Detroit leadership that is about solutions. I think that's so important. I want to thank you for being for doing Yeah, that. I, I agree. As always, I agree with Kim. You guys are you guys are super. It's a, a fabulous, uh, fabulous opportunity. And you know, I, 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 as you know, I, I listen to the podcast, and so having the opportunity to be on it, uh, I feel like I'm a little bit of celebrity now. I can't wait to to share it with my mom. <laughs> Whatever, man. All right, that does it for this episode of Authentic right, Detroit. Be safe. Thank you for listening and catch the wave. Okay.